I am Tova Cito. I believe our lives should be happy, healthy, and abundant. And I believe it's our job to get us there. Every week, I will have inspiring, educational, and fun conversations that will help you live your very best life. Welcome to The Remedy. Hey everyone, welcome to the next episode of The Remedy with Tovacito. I am here with fan favorite Janice Gant. Every time I ask her to come on, she's like, your people are going to get sick of me. And I was like, no, my people are begging for more of you. So Janice, as everybody knows, has been my therapist for well over four years, has changed my life, made me a much healthier, happier. She's a big part of of the remedy. I mean, oh, you've been so a sweet. big part of my remedy and uh, and making my life so much better. So today, uh, well, we've talked about sex twice. We've talked about parenting once. And today we're going to tackle a subject that probably has touched most people who are listening in some way, shape or form. And that is depression and suicide. Um, at first, I asked you if you would just come talk about suicide. And, right. And you said, well... Well, I think it was... De- oh, it was depression. The That's uh-huh. right. That's uh-huh. right. I asked you if you would come talk about depression, and you said, well, we, we can't talk about depression without also combining suicide and, and doing a, a, a show with both of those subjects on it. So just right off the cuff, tell me why. Well, I think that... Suicide is a subject that we dance around. And so the the reason why I think it's so important that we incorporate suicide in when we're talking about depression is that suicidal thoughts or suicidal tendencies or are actually attempting suicide is a result of depression. And so I think what's so important is that people are aware of what to do if someone is depressed in its in the relationship with suicide ideation. So the um, depression nowadays has been something that we are able to talk about it with much more liberty than we have in the past. I think so much of the time it was on the down low and people didn't talk about it. But now because of... Um, psychiatric medications and various interventions and 12-step groups that deal with that, it's become a more outspoken subject. And But yet suicide, and there's a, a fairly predictable set of questions that you can ask someone who's depressed to determine if they've had some suicide ideation, that I think we'll get to as we kind of enter into that. And and people don't talk about that. I've I've often thought because of teenage suicide and adolescent suicide being on the rise, um, one of the things that I really, really would love to do is to travel around high schools and really teach them about suicide ideation so that when their friends start to exhibit some of these signs, that they would know what to do with it. But I haven't done that. But it's, it's you know, we just don't talk about it very much. Not at all. Yeah. So, so will you educate me about that word, suicide ideation? Yes. So, so depression, so there's different levels of depression. Okay. So there is a general 
generalized depression and generalized anxiety. Depression and anxiety are a similar biochemical, they have similar biochemical traits in that a lot of anxiety and depression is treated with antidepressants. Okay. All right. So so there's a chemical part of it that is, that is, pretty predictable. It's why it's so important if people are feeling depressed is that they go to a psychiatrist or an internist. I typically recommend a a psychiatrist just because they've had extra training in the biochemical part of mental disorders or mental illness and to be evaluated. The we have a, it's called a DSM-5 now. It's a di- di- diagnostic and statistical manual that's created by the American Psychiatric Association. And it was originally, it's a book, a big fat book. And it has all the mental disorders and personality disorders in it and the descriptives of how one is diagnosed with that. Mm. And so, and it's pretty, um, it's it's very specific And so it also, if somebody qualifies as being diagnosed with with major depressive episode, then it's something that's big. And so it's something, uh, I mean disorder. A, 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 A depressive episode is something that can be more situational, like my mother transitioned on a couple of months ago. And um, as a result of that, I had a few days of feeling depressed, and that's just a heavy, heavy sadness. So that would be a situational depressed episode, mm-hmm. which is going to happen to a lot of people. Right. But at some point, for some reason, right? But the but the full blown uh, depressive disorder is you have to show a, a period of, I mean, a a list of characteristics for every day within like a two week period. Okay. So so then you can be diagnosed with that. So it's important that people do that because mm-hmm. then they can get on the right medicine. So is that like a so is if I were to go to if I were experiencing feelings of being depressed or sad and I would go to a psychiatrist, I would sit in an office and they would kind of go through a checklist. Is Correct. That, is that how that works? Yes, yes. They would ask you a lot of questions. Um, you want me to just tell you what those yeah, are? Okay, so what it is, helpful. it says five or, five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. At least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. So those are two very telltale indicators of a possible depression. Um so, and, and, and this doesn't pertain to a medical condition, like let's say you've just had surgery or you've been diagnosed with something and you feel these symptoms. This is away from a medical condition, mm-hmm. all right? That because you, that would be a really normal response or reaction to something like sure. that. So sure. the first one is depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective report, I feel sad, I feel empty, or uh, an, an observation made by others. Mm. Let's say your partner says to you, "Wow, you really seem like you're sad, or your you your your mood feels so low." 
Um, the, the second one is markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. And these are activities that previously would have brought you joy. Let's say if I had little interest in going over to see my grandchildren, mm-hmm. that would be an indicator. Um, significant weight loss or weight gain when it's not intentional. Uh, insomnia or hypersomnia which means lack of sleep or want to sleep all the time, mm-hmm. that's a really good indicator. One of the things that's kind of interesting about the insomnia is a lot of times people will wake up at like 3 in the morning and stay awake for a couple of hours, and that can be an indicator of, de- of onset of depression or of a or depressed mood. Um, psychomotor agitation, finger tapping, legs mm. jittering, inability to sit still, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. And then remember, this is every day on a sustained period of at least two weeks. Um, Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. Diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. So people, um, like people will get, kind of confused or they'll get lost a little bit like they'll like be overwhelmed, driving down the road overwhelmed too e- yeah, easily to, yeah or just like something that seems relatively small child forgets their homework and the and it's just so hard or it feels so mm. big mm. to take that in or to even say no I'm not going to bring it to you um or recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. So those are your criteria. Mm-hmm. And so if you have five or more of those for a sustained period of two weeks, then you probably are depressed. And you can, what you can do, what people can do is they can Google uh, signs of depression or indicators of depressive episodes so that they can look at this for themselves. And they can, you can, if someone is depressed, they'll most of the time they'll be able to spot it. Mm-hmm. And so then I always say, go to the doctor, get on medicine. The The medicines that we have now for depression and anxiety are phenomenal, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of them have very little side effects. And and it because there is that physiological brain chemistry component, it's going to be very difficult to fix that if you don't get on some medicine. Mm. What happens is... If you ever took a biology class, you actually learned this, but there are neurons in the brain, and in between each neuron, there's a synapse gap, which mm-hmm. is a space between that. Do you remember that I from remember biology? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is these neurotransmitters, which are feel-good neurotransmitters, they, they move from neuron to neuron. And the thing that lifts mood is the amount of time those neurotransmitters sit in that synapse gap, mm-hmm. all right? So if you're depleted in those neurotransmitters, then you have reuptake receptacles on the receiving neuron. And so some of the SSRIs, they they actually block some of those receptors so that the neurotransmitter sits in that synapse gap long enough to lift mood. When you jog or have a really hard workout, you're going to flood your brain with some of those neurotransmitters. And that's why exercise is so important when oh. people are depressed, but they don't want to exercise mm. because they have a low energy. Well, all of us have read at some point or another that 
exercising helps with depression, but I thought I had no idea that it was actually a physical because something physical was happening. Right. It releases neurotransmitters in the brain. Cocaine floods the synapse with dopamine. And so, which is, you don't want to do it (laughs) because then what happens with people who abuse cocaine or addicted to cocaine is they flood that synapse And then it scoops up, so you have this whoosh of a gigantic high, and then you're going to have a way low. So because then that then the neurons are depleted of the dopamine. Mm. See what I'm saying? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So when somebody is so, just so I understand, I'm going to kind of recap. Yeah, please. If somebody has a situation that their child is sick, they just got a hard diagnosis. Their mom just transitioned right um and and they're sad that is one type and then there's this type that you go through can that just happen one day can you just like wake up one day and this process of being depressed can physiologically happen in your body well i think what i think happens with that is so if somebody comes in my office and they are clearly depressed to me one of the things that i say is who is depressed in your family? Is it your mom or your dad? Because sadness, I also always say, if you cry when you're sad, you probably won't become depressed. If you talk about your fear and you feel your fear, you probably won't uh, develop an anxiety disorder. Because feelings emotions or energy in motion that floods through our body. But most of us have not been taught what to do with those feelings. And so resistance is going to create persistence, so to speak. Mm. So if I'm not feeling my sadness and I'm pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, and maybe I've done it all of my life, or maybe I've watched my mother do it, and children are emotional sponges so that energy, emotion, energy and motion goes out into the environment and children suck it in. Mm. So my mother had depression and, um, and I had some periods of depression. As a matter of fact, not that long ago, I don't, I may have already told you this, but I, um, went to see my internist and because my mother had uh, some dementia, he said, let's do this brain mapping, color mapping on your brain. I was like, okay, that's fun. It was so interesting to me. And so he did it and he called me one day and he said, everything in the back of your brain looks great. He said, but your frontal lobe is red when it's supposed to be blue or blue when it was supposed to be red. I can't remember. And he said, are you depressed? And I said, no, but I but I was actually going to call you because I have been having some anxiety. And I know what it feels. I know what it is. And I was going to call you to see about maybe getting on something. And he said, um, well, tell me what's going on in your world. And I said, well, my mother is basically dying. My oldest daughter has gotten a divorce. My younger daughter just had twins. And I went to Australia. And that was kind of chaotic and hectic. My business is absolutely insane. And he was like, well, oh my gosh. He said, you have so many things in your world. No wonder you've got this anxiety. So he said, I want to put you on a low dose of Zoloft. And I was like, great. So he put me on Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. It's an SSRI, pretty sure. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's pretty good for anxiety and depression. 
And so, because they're so closely linked, those two those two biochemical situations. And so he, I took, it was the smallest dose he had, took two of them, felt really weird on it. Then I started cutting them in half and started taking them. And what happened for me was that it felt like somebody had taken the a file and smoothed the edges of all of those situations in my life. Mm. And it was like, I could think about my mom and, and I could just hear God say, don't worry, I got her. Or I could think about my daughter. And uh, and rather than being like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, the kids, Bryn, Isaac, blah, 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 blah. You know, I could hear this kind of calming voice say, don't worry, I got it. So it was able, I was enabled by the medication to better keep it in perspective and to look that I was powerless over mm-hmm. all of that. And what I told my doctor, I said, you know what? I think I could have been on this all my life. Wow, and it and I was so happy to get on it because it it made it so much easier for me to talk to my clients about it because oh. I was like, you know what, I take it because people have such a mindset against I don't want to take medicine, I don't want to do that, I don't want to put that in my body, I don't want to be stronger than that, I don't want this yeah. shame of yeah taking and there is a psychological component to depression because our thinking creates our feelings mm-hmm. and our feelings determine our behaviors and so but a lot of us who grew up with someone with depression or or words like life's supposed to be hard or you know money doesn't grow on trees it's going to be hard to make it and all of those messages we have these pathways in our brain that are heavy so when people get depressed, one of the things they need to do besides taking medication is talk to somebody and help them learn a different way of believing, like God is abundance and, you know, somebody's in charge, just like with my family. For me to be able to understand, you know, everybody has a God and it is not me and I'm powerless over it and it's outside my hula hoop and all of those things, then it it made it it makes it easier for me to be in life itself because life is full of those situations that if you've raised with kind of a negative thinker, you will probably tend to have that same tendency. So fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And and that's why cognitive behavioral therapy can be really good. Mm-hmm. Because co- in cognitive behavioral therapy, what uh, we do is we look at the thoughts. What are you telling yourself about life, men? Mm-hmm. When When I was first single, I had a friend who... Every time I was with her, she'd be like, oh, my gosh, men, all they want is a 30-year-old. We're never going to find anybody, blah, 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 blah. And I would go out with her, and when I left the house, I was thinking, okay, I'm pretty cute. This is going to be fun, you know. (laughs) And by the time I was with her, about 10 minutes, I came home and was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. Because of that, just the thinking itself can so regulate our moods. That's amazing. Yeah. I want to I want to ask a question about that. So if that is true, um, how how much can our thinking have over our over our how much control do we have? Like if if I'm dealing with depression depression or if I'm feeling depressed, um, 
I, I know it's hard to put a percent on it, but right. but I think that for me, if I was thinking, okay, I my mind has can play a part in this, my thoughts can play a part in this, but I'm still on medication that I might feel bad or feel full of shame that I can't make I can't make this better. So right. how far can our thoughts really take us? Well, they can take us pretty far, but it's like, you know what? I liken it to diabetes. So if I'm diagnosed with diabetes and I, I need insulin, mm-hmm. and so, but my habits, my eating can play a part mm-hmm. in my diabetes. So I could lose weight or I could watch my sugar intake or my carb intake and get in a healthy lifestyle and exercise and all of those things. But I still need the insulin. And so I think what happens if people don't get on an antidepressant, sometimes it's just too hard mm-hmm. because the the biochemical component of depression has not been treated. So it's kind of like digging a hole with a shovel when you have, you know, a crane or not a crane. What is I, it? The big, the bulldozer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the cr- I get what I get what the I'm point. saying. Mm-hmm. Just the wrong. Yeah. The- and, and, and that's part of the problem is, is that people, they are, there is shame about taking an antidepressant, which is just pretty crazy to me. I think it's getting much, much, much better, but yeah. it's just so necessary for a lot you of know? people. It is. It's I, like a headache. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you've got a really bad headache, there are certain things you can do, but you may need an Advil. Yeah, I remember um, when I was getting divorced and Mm -hmm. I went to my OB and I was telling him, you know, I I think, or he asked me, how are you, how are you doing? And he's, he's just dear to me. Uh So it's like one of those people who ask you, how are you doing? And then the floodgates open. Right. (laughs) And then there's like three people that can make you cry and all they have to do is say, how are you? And he's one of them. And I just started crying, and he was like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, I've just been really struggling, and this divorce, it's just, oh, it's just been such a heartache. And he was like, well, Tova, we can do something. Like, let me just give you a low dose. And he offered something right immediately. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you take it? And I was like, no. I was like, oh, no, 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 Mm -hmm. no. And he said, why? Why why wouldn't you want to try medication? And it, well, he asked if I was in therapy. I was like, yes, I've got a great therapist. And he was like, are you, let's talk about some medication. Uh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to take mm-hmm. medicine. I just thought my, I have my mind. I have my faith. I exercise. I, I am stronger than needing medication. Mm-hmm. And I was like, for all those reasons, I told him, no, I don't want, I, I, I got this. And he goes, no, you're you're right because if you had diabetes and I offered you insulin, you wouldn't want to do that, would you? You would just want to control it all yourself. He was like, good luck with that. Yeah. And yeah. and I just started laughing. <laughs> I was like, okay, you uh-huh. won. And I I said, okay, I'll try. And it was a situational. I mm-hmm. I got on it. I I stayed on it for about six months. I got off of it and and. I mean, it, oh, it so helped. Yes, it really does. It just allows you to breathe. Okay, can I ask you a question? How would you, how would you, how would you explain the difference 
between depression and anxiety? How do those things feel differently and how are they treated differently, if well, at all? The um, depression is going to feel heavy. So it is um, sadness, lack of interest, just feeling like, oh, I don't want to do anything. Whereas anxiety is going to be felt more physically in the heart and chest area, is you're going to have a little bit of a inside it's and so you feel elevated as a as opposed to feeling deflated mm-hmm. makes sense but that but the elevation isn't like oh this is going to be so much fun it's like my body is is revved i always tell people um you know our internal engine should sound like this if your engine is like, mm, then that's probably from history, unless you've had, a, it's probably a trauma response from your family of origin stuff, or it's from a, a trauma response from a, a, a PTSD reaction to something that happened, like you were in a plane that almost went down, or you had a terrible car wreck, or something like that. So, when we are raised in a family system that that is going to elevate that engine with trauma like yelling or spanking or 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 it's just not a come home and feel good about being there it's like you got to make your grade you got to do this why did you make an a blah blah blah, blah. then their engine is going to get revved and they'll carry that revved engine into their world and at some point in time that revved engine will probably shift into either anxiety or depression. And we know, what we know now with research of absolute certainty, that there is a tendency for gene mutation as a result of trauma. Wow. So, so there is... I did is, not know that. that. That's, you know, we say depression is inherited or there's depression runs in the family. I think that there can be a little bit of a genetic mutation that's happened as a result of that. And I think a lot of it is learned. It is the child absorbing that heavy depressive energy. So if I'm, if I'm in the house with my kids and I'm feeling sad, or if I, I, then, and I say, hey guys, I feel really, really sad today. So just want you to know, I'm going to go in my room and I may cry, I may lie on the floor and flop around. And, but that's my sadness. It's not yours. It's human. And so I'm going to cry and it's okay. You're, you're teaching your children that they can have these feelings because you're able to have them and you're talking about them. Then the child knows, okay, well, there's mom. She's feeling sad. You know, it's like, I think I said in here before, if we could build a wailing wall in every house and everybody could go when they're sad, just say, okay, go to the wall and everybody be one flopping around and wailing and releasing all that energy. You're, you would have a much, much, much lower percentage of depression yeah. because what we feel we can heal yeah. and what we don't feel we will have to deal We'll have to deal with at it. Some point, cause at it, some it com- point. Because it comes It doesn't go out. away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was something that really, when I was going through my divorce, that when you gave me permission, I think I, I, it was in your office where I said something like, 
you know, I'm just the hardest part for me is trying to be happy for the kids and just trying to create the normal happy home that I've always wanted. And it's so hard because I'm not happy and this is so hard and this is so sad. And you were like, why do you have to do that? Yeah. And this is hard. This is sad. And it's more weird if you're okay and mom's amazing and happy and nothing has changed about her behavior or demeanor, even though she's lost the love of her life. You know what I mean? Right. You cry. You need to cry in front of your kids. This is sad. It is sad. And, you know, I think actually what happens, too, when we don't own it, the kids know it. Oh, they yeah. feel it. They are so intuitive. They are. And so then if we're not, if we're saying, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, then they're going to have an incongruency between what they've been told and what their reality is telling him. To where if you own it, then they can be like, oh, okay. So mom is sad. Yeah, she gets sad and she goes in her room and she cries sometimes. And you're also giving them permission to feel it. And what has happened to men, Terry Real, one of my mentors, has written a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And it's about male overt and covert depression. It is a fantastic book for men to read and a fantastic book for women to read to understand men. And the I gotta read this book. Oh, I've never read it. Oh, it's so good. Mm. And and what he says is, I mean, he said we should have Lexapro in the water because men have not been taught to feel, and so, but it doesn't go away. So there's this huge level of functioning people, men in particular, um, who have who are have a low level of depression. And they're medicating it with either work or alcohol or sex or something like that, that they that they wouldn't have to do that. Had they initially been taught how to talk about it mm-hmm. and then to be able to medicate it if they uh, – because men are really difficult. They're difficult to get – to say yes to medicine because mm. they feel like it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. Men and people like you and me. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there and there's that faith issue, too, that you mentioned is, you know, oh, well, if my faith were strong enough, I would just be happy. Right. I think I think that is when religion can be uh, kind of a disservice. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I hope everybody hears that, hears that in the way that I mean it, because there are so many people who who would encourage someone who's dealing with depression or anxiety well just give it to the lord just pray right. and and you know i i have only very recently experienced anxiety for the very first time oh. i have i didn't know what it meant i mean i really i knew what it meant but i never knew how it felt and one of my best friends, and I told her this last week at lunch, she struggled with anxiety for years. Yeah. And she would tell me about the things that would bring her anxiety. And I would hear them and I would think about, gosh, that would be hard. But I didn't know what that felt like. I had no sympathy or compassion for what it truly felt like. And, and, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, I've experienced anxiety for the first, I mean, when you, how you described it is so true. Waking up at three, the beating in my chest that like, 
you, I can even hear that sound in my voice mm-hmm. at times yes. in between. And, um, you know, there's been, there's been things that have, that I know exact, I can pinpoint exactly what has happened to, that has contributed to me feeling like that. But it is, it is a miserable feeling. It's terrible. Anxiety is miserable. I mean, and I had to tell my girlfriend that I went to lunch with last week. I was like, I have been listening to you talk about your anxiety for years, and I am so sorry. Like, I am so sorry that this is something that you struggle with because that is real. And it, let me tell you, I am when I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning, I'm praying. And it doesn't go away. No. So that whole faith thing, of course, I believe God can do anything. But but it, it I can see how that could really get discouraging. Well, whenever, so anxiety is fear that's resisted. And so one of the things that people can do when they start to feel anxious is to say, okay, what am I afraid of? And get really honest with yourself about that. And a fear, false experience appearing real. And then I think, okay, well, what am I afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that my relationship won't work out. I'm going to have to start over again. So then I'd say, okay, so follow that through. So then what? So what if that happens? Mm -hmm. So you identify the fear and then walk through it. And that should, it's kind of like a a balloon if you take put a tiny hole in it, that will start to deflate a little bit. And the thing... That is such... That is a very powerful exercise right there. It will really, really help. I remember when I was single and I had this... Because the stock market had, you know, crashed and and I'd lost some money in the stock market. And, um, and I had this fear. I had some anxiety. And I was like, okay, so what am I afraid of? I'm afraid that... My business will tank and nobody will ever come see me again. Okay, so then what? Well, I could work at Whole Foods because I love the vibe. I love the hippie vibe. I could sell vitamins. <laughs> or I could sell shoes. <laughs> yeah, demons. You I like those too, you know, and I could be pretty happy. Okay, and I could live, and there was this little apartment on the corner of the Tollway and University. It was like, I don't know, $600 a month or something. And I thought, you know, I've got good furniture. I could move in there and it'd be little, but it'd be cool. And I own my car. I'd have insurance with the Whole Foods or Neiman's. You know, so then as I walked myself through that fear, I thought, oh, it could be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's the chances of me being homeless with worms crawling in and out of my toes was pretty nil. <laughs> You know, and so, but that, but, but so that fear of financial insecurity, for example, is Mm -hmm. a very real thing Mm -hmm. that's not based on reality Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. So, so to that point, when you have anxiety and you start going down these rabbit trails, are most of those just ridiculous? Well, I don't think, I think that there's a part of it that is based on something, Mm -hmm. but there's a study done that said 99, I think it was 97% of what we worry about never happens. So worrying is kind of like sitting in a rocking chair, gives you something to do, but you go nowhere. And like, I can lie, I've got these nine absolutely spectacular grandchildren and I can lie in the bed and start thinking about 
something happening to one of them, and I can feel my heart start to race. Mm-hmm. And then a mantra is another really good thing. So I say, my cho- my grandchildren have a God, and it is not me. Or Owen is surrounded by the white light of Christ through which nothing negative can penetrate. Or some mantras that I can go over and over and over. Because remember, your thinking is what's created this. So as I control my thinking or re- do thought replacement, mm-hmm. Saying I'm not going to think about it only intensifies it, but if I do a thought replacement, it's a substitute because we cannot think two thoughts at the same time. That's really an awesome remedy right there. It is. It really works. Another thing you can do is if you, is you is a breathing exercise. So you breathe in for four, hold your breath for eight, and then blow out for seven. And if you do that like two or three times... The diaphragm will be released, and you'll probably fall asleep. Like at 3 in the morning, if you wake up with that, do that about three or four times, and it'll probably put you to sleep. My dad used to say that he would wiggle his toes, and that would put him back to sleep. But so, so we're not so powerless over it. And, and to remember that, you know, God and his wisdom and divinity created us with these feelings. Mm-hmm. So there is no... There, religion has nothing to do with that. We were created with those feelings because they serve us well. You know, a lot of times people don't take action until they feel angry. Or the sadness is a cleansing process with the grief. It helps us to release all of that emotion. And anxiety or fear is just a thought, you know. But sometimes my fear helps me because I won't run out in front of a diesel truck. Sure, sure, You know. I just, it's its all so fascinating. It's pretty interesting. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say is that with adolescence and depression, it's tricky because a lot of adolescent, typical adolescent behavior is also a sign of depression. So mm-hmm. like moodiness, mm-hmm. I mean. Hiding you, in your room. Do you know an adolescent <laughs> who isn't moody? <laughs> I don't. I have three of them. I certainly was a hot mess. <laughs> You know, and so, but one of the things that you really want to do with adolescents is you really want to talk to them about it mm-hmm. because they're not going to talk to their friends about it. Like now we might easily talk to our friends. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter came home the other day and I could feel her heaviness. I could oh. feel it in the car. And, you know, she's usually pretty bubbly. And, uh-huh. and um, so I said, hey, Hey, come, we always have closet chats. We always go uh-huh. sit in my closet when it's time to have a Is talk. Is your closet big? <laughs> well, it's big <laughs> enough for two of us to sit in. You have a chair in it? <laughs> no, we sit. It's the only carpet in my whole house. And so we sit on the carpet. Oh, that's so cute. And yeah, I'm like, come on, let's have a closet chat. And I said, what's, what's going on? I can feel it. And uh, she's like, Mom. And she talked about how two of her friends at school mentioned suicide and she was like it's just so big mom and I don't know what to do and she said and then like they're not even like amazing friends but of mine but now all of a sudden I feel like I'm so responsible Mm -hmm. and if I don't if I'm not there for them or if I'm not perfectly perfect for what they need in that moment and what if they like something happened to them and it's because of something I did or I didn't do. Oh, 
What'd you say? And well, the first thing I said was, baby, if somebody hurts themselves, it has nothing to do with you. Um, even though that's hard to believe there's, I mean, if somebody wants to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, but I said, who, who did you talk to? Have you talked with anybody about this besides me? Because somebody needs to know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know their parents, you know, Mm -hmm. I would have gone to them, but she said she went to the counselor. Oh, she did. Good. She did. She did it all on her own. But I mean, to your point, back saying, you know, I feel you would like to go to a school. And I mean, these kids have all these emotions and I'm, I know my, so I have a fit twins, 15 right. year old twins, boy, girl, Anna Prynne tells me everything. Uh-huh. Sometimes I don't want to know that she played spin the bottle and kiss three boys in one night. <laughs> go Anna Prynne. <laughs> and then Carter, I mean, I couldn't beg, borrow or steal a, a any truth or or lie from him for that matter i mean he's a he's a vault uh-huh. and um and and yet i know that both of them in their own way are dealing with so much and then they're so ill-equipped no, i mean i know i'm ill-equipped you know but they just it's so much for them it's so much for them so to your point you know all teenagers at some point are probably going to demonstrate these these um, actions or behaviors that look like depression. How do we know as parents when it's time to do something? I think a lot of times what you'll see in adolescence is you'll see, like I said, anger, ec- extra moodiness. You will see a falling off maybe of grades or they're not wanting to hang around their friends or they are slipping into some sort of OCD behaviors, you know, arranging their books a lot, checking their backpacks several times. Anytime you see any pulling or, you know, of course, cutting or anything like that, there's going to be those are anxiety, those are OCD behaviors and their anxiety slash depressive behaviors as well. And I did not know that about yeah, OCD. Yeah. And so you start to recognize that and then you take them. There are some great adolescent uh, psychologists here and psychiatrists. And I wouldn't hesitate in a nanosecond to put my adolescent on medicine if they felt like they needed. You know, there's been some some research or I think it was about some Adolescents and adults who have uh, committed suicide once they got on an antidepressant, and I don't, and I, I don't, I'm not an expert on the medicine, but I think sometimes um, suicide is when somebody commits suicide and they've been put on an antidepressant, they are going to have a little more energy, and they would have the energy to hurt themselves or to try to hurt themselves. So it's re- very tricky, but if I had any sort of concern, uh, I would just ta- I would take my adolescent to a to not me. There are people who are much better at that than me. You know that that could really help with that and then maybe you get them on medicine. So it's okay for teenagers to be yeah. on Yeah. Anti- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll put, you know, Prozac is a really good OCD 
and I don't know what else they're doing right now with adolescents, but yeah, for sure. Why is OCD a symptom? Is it because they're, they feel like their lives are so out of control that to control something feels good? Yes. Is that why? Yes. And like the pulling and the cutting, that's about pain relief. So if they've got all this emotional pain, then if they pull... Do you know what I'm talking about? It's I called don't. it's called trichotillomania, and they'll pull out their eyebrows, or they'll pull out their eyelashes, or they'll pull out their hair. They might pull out their hair in the back. I had a client who stayed up all night one night, pulling out every single hair on her legs. Oh, yeah, and that those are OCD behaviors. They're anxiety based behaviors, and they're OCD. So the compulsion. So OCD is the um, the obsession, the thought obsession, and then the compulsion is the behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's the obsession and then the compulsion, arranging your books, washing your hands, not stepping on cracks, counting tiles, all of those things. Count steps. I count steps. When I go up the steps, <laughs> I always count steps. And uh, I was doing that. That's a little bit of an OCD behavior. Well, I have other stuff. Don't worry. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people do have those little idiosyncrasies that mm-hmm. we, and, and it's not causing disruption in your life, then it's nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you're pulling out your eyelashes or, or cutting, both of those behaviors are going to give a little pain relief. And that's what cutting is about. When kids cut on themselves, you know, with razor blades or or fingernails or whatever, that's to give them some relief from the internal pain. And what typically happens is those kids are living in a household where there is some dysfunction going on, and a lot of those kids will act act out when parents are crazy controlling. Mm -hmm. you got to make straight A's. you got to look perfect all the time. Don't Don't be fat, you know, body comments and stuff like that. You want to talk about suicide? Yeah, I um, do. So I had the great privilege of when I went back to graduate school. I went back to school at 42. 42 and after I got my master's, I worked at Timberline Mental, Ho- Mental Hospital. And I worked on the adult psych unit, the dual diagnosis group, which we treated them for addictions and um, mental disorders. So we'd have addicts and um, and then like depression all of that. We also had the adult psych intensive care. So when people tried to kill themselves and didn't succeed, then they would be taken to Parkland and they would either be stitched up or or um, or detoxed and then brought to us. So my boss, who was just such a great guy, he said, why don't you do the I had watched him, no, I'd watched a psychiatrist do the suicide prevention group. And he said, why don't you do that group? And I was like, okay, that'd be fun. I mean, I thought it'd be real interesting. So we had probably 30 people who had tried to kill themselves and they would come in and we would talk with them about suicide. And the thing about suicide is it it has a very predictive course. So there are five wow. stages of suicide ideation. I would ideation. have never said that. I know. That's This is the lecture I want to give to the high schools, is there's suicide ideation. The first one is passive suicide ideation. And what that means is, oh, I don't even want to be here anymore. A lot of people 
have felt that. You may have, after, you know, all of the stuff with your children, your biological children, that you probably thought it'd just be easier if I just checked out. Oh, for sure. So that's what we call passive suicide ideation. And like I said, I think most people have had that. The second stage is suicide ideation. So what that would look like is, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, maybe I'll kill myself. So that's when the thought comes in, maybe. Mm-hmm. The third step is suicide ideation with a plan. So that is, I don't want to be here anymore. Maybe I'll kill myself, and I will do it with pills. Mm-hmm. The fourth stage is suicide ideation with a plan to implement the plan. I don't want to be here anymore. I think I'll kill myself. I'm going to do it with taking pills, and I'll do it Friday night when my family goes out to dinner. And then the fifth stage is attempt or success. So whenever somebody is really depressed, I do this in my office. If somebody's really depressed, then I will go through this process. But you could do it with your friend. You could do it with one of your children. You could do it with anybody is when you say, are you depressed? And if they're like, yeah, and you'll know it because you'll see it. Even if they're like, no, you say, well, you know what? It really looks like to me that you're depressed. You seem so sad and heavy and kind of like you did with Anna Prynne the other day. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody, if, if I'm, so if somebody is really depressed, the next thing I say is, have you thought about hurting yourself? Mm-hmm. And nobody, people don't ask that. I've never asked you know? anybody that. And that, and, and, Two things that are interesting about that. One is nobody ever says, no, I hadn't thought about that. But now that you mention it, that's a great idea. You know, so mm-hmm. you're not going, you're not going to give them you're an not idea. Going to infer something mm-hmm. to them and give them an idea that they will act on. Mm-hmm. That's they, good. That's good to know. Yeah. And so and what's also very interesting is if someone is thinking about it, they will typically tell you. Wow. Yeah. Then the third question is, have you thought about how you would do it? And if they say, yes, I would take pills, then I would say, do you have pills? So it's accessibility. Mm-hmm. I'd shoot myself. Do you have a gun? I'd hang myself. Have you bought a rope? But if somebody has a plan, in between the third and fourth stage, having a plan and a plan to implement the plan, there's a place that we call the tunnel, and that is, it's. I view it as like, you know, when you flush the commode and all that momentum and that water goes down and it takes them down. If people have a plan and a plan to implement the plan, the chances are pretty good that they may try it. Wow. And the only way you could prevent it is to be attached to them 24-7. Right. And so, so if someone has a plan and a plan to implement the plan, you need to call 911. Mm-hmm. They and, need to be on suicide watch. And you don't need to leave their side. Mm-hmm. But I would have them come get them, mm-hmm. you know, because you will hear, and I'm always amazed to hear how many people say, oh, I think they're just trying to get attention. I have never seen that, mm. ever. I think anybody mentions hurting themselves, I am going to take it so seriously. So if somebody says, yes, you know, I actually have, I would take pills. And I said, do you have them? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, okay, I want you to sit here. Let me call your mom or your dad or, or 
you know, a friend to come get you, but you need to go to the hospital. I can't keep them there, mm-hmm. but um, but most of the time they'll let me do that. They'll let, you know, they'll stay. So I, it's it's about not being afraid to ask those questions and to make sure that you take them seriously. Really good. Yeah. Really, really good. You know, people, when somebody uh, kills themselves, a lot of times people will say, Nobody had any idea that they were that depressed. And, and I, I have a hard time really believing it. What I think we will do as humans is we'll not go there in our head. We'll be thinking, oh, if the thought comes in, rather than ask them and talk to them, we just kind of go over it because it's so uncomfortable. Right, right. You know? I have known several people who've committed suicide. And, I mean, just... Two, two of I, out of the handful of people that I know, every single person, including their family, was like, we had no idea. There were no signs. There was, I never saw this coming. Well, you know what I wonder is, is, is are maybe that people are just not informed about what it looks like yeah. those criteria right lack of interest do you want to play golf no i don't want to play golf but you haven't played golf in two months and you love it yeah i just can't do it you know so some of those mm-hmm. indicators mm-hmm. when we familiarize ourselves with those then i think we'd we would be better able to recognize mm-hmm. you know our lives are so busy I know. and you're driving kids everywhere and People are working or traveling or whatever. Sometimes it would be hard to see sleeplessness, you know, uh, just that low, flat mood. You know, I just, I don't know. I mean, and, and it could be. I'm not saying that it never, ever happens because I certainly right. do not know that. But I think that familiarizing ourselves with that and asking those questions are really important. What, what, what do you, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've counseled people who have lost family members to suicide how how do people who have lost a son or a daughter how did how i mean i people have said that that has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone and yeah. i could not agree more i know because i can't imagine the guilt i mean i i know a family very well, who's lost a son to suicide. And that mom has never been the same. She has never been the same. Yeah. And so what, what would you say to anyone who's lost someone close to them who, um, to suicide and about not taking on all that guilt? Oh, I should have seen it. I should have done something. I should have asked those questions. I, I should have, should have, should have, should have, should have. Well, if we don't know to ask, then we're not going to ask. And I think that what happens, and this was another part that was so interesting in working with all those people who had tried to kill themselves, is they they feel like the world's going to be better. And they believe it with every fiber of their being. The world will be better once I get out of there. It'll be easier for everybody, you know, and uh, and I won't be such a burden on people and all of that. So in their mind, it makes such perfect sense. And a lot of times what you'll see is if somebody has been really depressed and then all of a sudden they have a lift in mood, 
that's a that's a red flag because it can very well mean that they've decided they're going to do that. And you'll most of the time see like you know somebody that will because go buy there's toys some relief. For, yeah. And they believe that it's going to be all better. And so they um it, it it's it's a very and once I get into that stage, mm. it's just hard to pull them out. Pull them out of it. It's why they have to be hospitalized. And they, um, you know, one of the things that I do tell people if they're in my office and they're depressed and they're contemplating suicide, I say, um, "Okay, so let me ask you a question. What would you do if your child killed themselves, themselves?" And they'll say, "Oh my gosh, I would want to die." And I said, so when you, if you choose to kill yourself, and you can, I want you to visualize yourself taking, wrapping a present, and in that present is a note that says, you now have permission to kill yourself. And I want you to picture yourself handing that to your child. Because if you do it as a parent, oh. that's what you're doing. Wow. You're modeling that as an option and a lot of times that will pull somebody out of it because they'll say I would I would I would die if my child did that you know and so good it because they're because once they get in that tunnel place it's just so hard to reason because they feel relief when they start thinking oh about getting out yeah yeah so what do you, what have you said to people who, um, and, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll, uh, but I have so many questions. I mean, I have like a thousand questions <laughs> you in my do? head. Yes. <laughs> but everything you say brings up the next thing. But my question, um, is what do you say to those people who are angry with somebody who's committed suicide and say, you know, say things like they were so selfish. They were so, I mean, how could they have done that? What is, how do you, how do you counsel someone through that thought process? Well, I know that anger is a really appropriate Mm -hmm. feeling for somebody to have when a loved one has done that. I mean, what I would do is, and I've done this many times with families, go to their house and really talk to them about what the thought process was for their loved one as they were getting down those stages and and thinking that it their belief is that everyone will be better. So it is a very selfless thing to do in their mind. Wow. But That's the thinking is not logical, you know, so it really helps people to understand that thought process mm-hmm. and what, where that person is, because it's not like they're saying, okay, I'm going to kill myself and this whole family is going to be devastated for the rest of their life because of it. No, they're thinking, oh, it'll be relief for me and it'll be total relief for them. Wow. So when you explain that, it helps them kind of sit in it. That. That I've never heard that before. I never, I've never, I've never known that anybody, but that people who commit suicide believe that the world and everybody in it would be better if they were gone. Easier, no cheaper, idea. better for everybody. Won't be so heavy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I knew it was all about their pain. I would always say they had to be in so much pain 
because as sad as I've been and as depressed as I've been and as hard as some days of my life have been, um, and and I I'd be lying if I said I never thought about committing suicide because I have. Yeah. Um, but I've only got to stage one or two, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and there was thinking. There was a thinking when I would think about that. Um, that that I just needed relief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be relieved of the sadness and the pain and the heartache that I was in. I know. And so I, it, it makes sense to me that they don't go beyond what's happening. Um, and if they do, they probably feel like they're just this huge burden. They do. Yeah. They really do. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. This this has been so incredibly insightful and helpful, and I I appreciate all of it. I think a ton of people that I know, I mean, that we live with, experience anxiety, depression, um, suicidal thoughts, and I I hope anybody who's listening who deals with any of those things, number one, doesn't feel so alone and so shameful about it. Yeah. We are human, and yeah. part of the human condition are these sort of things. Right. And for us to be able to say, "Oh wow, there I am being human." The other day, I walked out into my lobby, and I had triple booked <laughs> an hour. <laughs> And I was like, well, y'all want to do group therapy? And, and, you know, and I said to all of them, I said, I'm so, it's tragic that you have a human being as your therapist, you know, and that's one of the things is for us to not take ourselves so seriously and take care of yourself and relax and go on vacations and don't be so overcommitted. When people are depressed, if, if they're having some depression, tell people no and Pamper yourself. Go get a pedicure or whatever it needs to do. And love, 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 love yourself through Mm. that depression. Not out of it, but through it. It's really good. And realize that you are that precious child of God that is experiencing a human condition. Mm -hmm. That's that's it. And get on medication. And get on medication. Because it can help. Yeah, it really can. The first thing I did last week when I was experiencing the anxiety was called my doctor. I was like, okay, I got to get back on. Love it. Love it. Love <laughs> just, it, Tova. I just so know good. It. I got to get back on. Yeah. It's okay. Good. Yeah. It's okay. I'm going to do it till the day I transition on. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, thank you, Janice. You're I can't welcome, wait to sweet see Tova. what we talk I about next time. Love you too. Sure. I'm so appreciative. If your ratings you. go down, don't tell me. Stop. <laughs> They skyrocket when you're on. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Remedy with Tova Sita. To get more information, sponsor an episode, or contribute to this program, please visit us online at tovacito.com slash podcast or find us on social media.